Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend in study of your word so far. I pray that you will continue to enlighten our minds as we conclude our time together, as we conclude this portion of our study of the 144,000, we recognize that there's yet so much more that we have not even begun to develop and to understand. And so may you guide our personal study that we will be faithful to identifying more precious and present truths uh, to apply to our lives. Bless us now as we continue the study of your word, and may your Holy Spirit continue to lead and teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, welcome back. I think I see mostly familiar faces. I'll skip the, skip the review this time. But let's, uh, let's get right into it. We're talking about the first fruits, but let's begin in Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14, we haven't dealt with it really at all yet. And that's where we want to conclude our study today. Looks like uh, my notes got a little mixed up here. Okay. So Revelation chapter 14, we'll just read the first few verses together. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I just want to take a look at a few of the characteristics of the 144,000 in these verses, and then we'll move on specifically on talking about the first fruits. But I feel it's important just to give you a brief overview. First of all, they're standing on the Mount Zion with the Lamb, and they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now, that's familiar territory. We just talked about the seal in the forehead, and the forehead representing the mind or the heart, the seat of the intelligence. The Father's name. That's right, Mr. Bang, stealing my thunder. <laughs> it's the character, right? To the, to the Jewish mind in particular, name connotes character. Daniel, God is my judge. You know, God will provide Jesus, for he will save them from their sins. Somehow, like even Jacob, he had a pretty bad name. He was the supplanter, the deceiver. What parents in their right mind would name their children the supplanter? But that's how he came out. He was grabbing his brother's heel, and he ended up to match his name. But of course, he wrestled with God, and he became Israel, right? Prince, uh, the prince of God. And so... The father's name, they have the father's character, all right? But more than that, when you own a product, if you have, say, a flashlight or a toy if you're a child, what do you, what do you write on it? You write your name. God writes his name on those who are his. To me, that's a simple thought, but it's, it's a terribly powerful thought. God writes his name on me because I am his and he is mine. I like that thought. Continuing, they sing a new song that no one else can sing, and we 
uh, we read in Revelation 15, it's a song of Moses and of the Lamb. It's a song of deliverance, we're told elsewhere. It's a song that no one can sing because it's a song, or they have an experience that no one else has had. And of course, that's worthy of much more study. We won't get into that right now. They are not defiled with women. And women in the book of Revelation symbolize churches. We have the white women, the woman clothed in white in Revelation 12, the pure church, the remnant church. And then we have the woman clothed in scarlet, Babylon, the harlot. And she has daughters. <laughs> and so 144,000, they're not defiled with the fallen churches, the apostate religions of the world, if you will. And they're also called virgins. So that goes hand in hand. You know, virgins are not defiled sexually. But <clears throat> you remember we talked about the parable of the talents. And then we talked about the parable of the wise and, and faithful servant along with the wicked servant. Do you know that sandwiched right between those two in the first part of Matthew 25 is the parable of the, 20, or the ten virgins? And the ten virgins actually have everything to do with the present truth. The judgment, the wedding, being ready to go in, being shut out, I know, I know you're not. All those things, the virgins, particularly if you read that in light of the Millerite movement, in light of the 1844, the end of the 2300 days, the virgins, the parable, really has direct application. The 144,000 are virgins. They enter into the wedding. They enter into the wedding of the Lamb. And they follow the Lamb. This one I really like. Jesus is described as the lamb several times in these five verses. The lamb. And of course, the simple surface reading, we say, well, these people are followers of Jesus. They're Christians, and, and they, they do what he says, and they follow his example, right? Check this out. Jesus has many names in the Bible, doesn't he? Many titles that are ascribed to him, describing various facets of his ministry. In one place, he is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. Uh, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the rock. He is Michael the Archangel. He's all of these things, and they're just shining a light on different facets of, Christ, facets of Christ's ministry. And the title of the Lamb of God also is a description of one facet of Christ's work. And what facet is it? The Lamb is associated with what? Exactly right. Sacrifice. Where does the sacrifice take place? You can answer. On the altar in the courtyard. We're, we're thinking about the sanctuary now. So the lamb is slain on the altar. But is that the end of the role of the lamb? I mean, the lamb is dead, but the life is in the what? The blood. So the blood is, uh, is caught in the bowl, and the priest takes the blood into the sanctuary and is sprinkled, right, on the veil. And once a year, there's the cleansing of the sanctuary. And there's more blood. Specifically, it's a goat this time, but you understand the point. And the cleansing of the sanctuary takes place on the Day of Atonement. And then we understand that to be the antitypical Day of Atonement, investigated judgment, 2300 days, the hour of the judgment has come, all those things. We should be familiar with that. So, what does it mean that the 144,000 follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes? They follow the Lamb to the altar. They follow the Lamb into the holy place. They follow the Lamb into the most holy place. They follow Jesus, who has consecrated a new and living way into the most holy. They follow Jesus through the sanctuary. So the 144,000, do you think they're going to have 
a thorough understanding and a thorough application in their lives of the sanctuary message? Absolutely yes. Isn't that powerful? They follow the Lamb. I love that. But that's not what we're going to talk about this hour, even though I just talked about it. <clears throat> they have no guile in their mouth, and there's no fault found in them in the presence of the throne. And this is really talking about the judgment, isn't it? The investigative judgment is to determine who is righteous, who is not. Let him who is righteous be righteous still at the conclusion. Let him who is filthy be filthy still, right? They pass the judgment. They actually pass the judgment, and there's no fault found within them. And uh, I'll just throw this out there. Ellen White will read about it in Great Controversy later, but that means they actually live through a period of time without an intercessor. That is a very deep and penetrating study, but we'll have to leave that for another time. But they are also called the first fruits. Come back to that in a minute. But this is fascinating. All of these descriptions, all of these descriptions, in one way or another, relate to Jesus. And this is one of my favorite studies. You go through the characteristics of the 144,000, and every single one of them, either they're direct descriptions that are mirrored from Jesus himself. For example, Jesus was described as having no guile. He was without fault or blemish. Of course, Christ was a virgin. He was not defiled with women. They sing the song of the Lamb, right? Moses and the Lamb. All of these things and more, direct correlation with Jesus. The 144,000 are like spitting images, if I can use that term, of Jesus. And even the first fruits. So that's where we're going to head next. Let's talk about Jesus, who is also called first fruit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 20 first corinthians 15 and verse 20 but now is christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept for since by man came death by man came also the resurrection of the dead verse 22 for as in adam all die even so in christ shall all be made alive 23, but every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. So, a couple important points here. Christ is identified as the first fruits of those who sleep, the first fruits of the dead. Now, okay, we'll, we'll expound on that a little bit more. Verse 23 is important. It says, every man in his own order. There's an order of events, a sequence of events. First, Christ must rise, and then after him, all the others. And this is really one of the key points of the first fruits, is that without having the first fruits, you can't have any other fruits. You can't have number two, three, and four before you have the number one, right? You can't have the second born, the third born, and the fourth born if you don't have the first born. So the first fruits simply denotes he comes first. But there's a significance to that, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. A little bit of commentary here from uh, Ellen White. Bible Commentary, Volume 6, 1092, page 1092. Christ was the first fruits of them that slept. This very scene, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, was observed in type by the Jews at one of their sacred feasts. 
They came up to the temple when the first fruits had been gathered in and held a feast of thanksgiving. The first fruits of the harvest crop were sacredly dedicated to the Lord. That crop was not to be appropriated for the benefits of man. The first ripe fruit was dedicated as a thank offering to God. He was acknowledged as the Lord of the harvest. When the first heads of grain ripened in the field, they were carefully gathered, and when the people went up to Jerusalem, they were presented to the Lord, waving the ripened sheaf before him as a thank offering. After this ceremony, the sickle could be put to the wheat, and it could be gathered into sheaves. So there's a lot in there about what the first fruits, how they're handled, what they're used for, all of those things. I'm summarizing now. They were sacredly dedicated to the Lord. The first fruits, not only were they the first grain to ripen, even though that is important, they were sacred to the Lord, sacredly dedicated to the temple, and they were used and appropriated in the temple service. Oops. They also were thank offerings given to the Lord and is representative of the entire harvest. So just like our tithe, we give God 10%. It's not to say this is all that belongs to you, God. It's a representation. Give him 10% of our first fruits. We even use that sometimes to represent that everything else also belongs to him. So yes, the first fruits are specifically dedicated to the Lord, but that just means is representative of everything else also belongs to the Lord. And it also must be presented to God before the harvest can continue. Okay, these are just some of the high points that we notice so far. So applying this to the 144,000, because they're identified as first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, the 144,000 then also are sacredly dedicated to the Lord for a special purpose. And I think this has something to do with the special experience that they have that no one else has. And I wish I could go into that. Maybe if we have time, I can dive into it a little bit later. But we do know that they, in the future, have a special place, a special role that the other redeemed people don't have. Okay. The 144,000 are also representatives of the rest of the harvest. And also, the harvest cannot continue until the first fruits or until the 144,000 are presented. So if I can put it in another words. The 144,000 in some way are representative of all of the other redeemed who will be saved. That's the harvest. And also, until the 144,000 are in existence on the earth, the harvest can't happen. They need to appear first. Because before you can have a harvest, you have to have the first fruits, just like you can't have a secondborn before you have a firstborn. Similar type of question. So these last two points here, I, I want to hold off for a moment, and we're going to come back to it to expound on it in a little bit. But I want to talk a little bit to, to extrapolate and to expand a little bit our understanding by talking about the process of growth. Because when we talk about first fruits and harvests and, and agriculture and these things, there's a process of growth. There's a process of growth, and Jesus actually explains what it is. Let's look in Mark, Gospel of Mark. Mark 4. We'll begin reading in verse 26. Mark 4, 26. And he said, So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground, 
and should sleep and rise night and day. And the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth, bringing forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. We're familiar with this illustration, aren't we? First the ear, or first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear, and when the fruit is brought forth, the harvest has come. This is a description of the Christian growth. You know, we're, we're not baptized and then immediately we are fully mature and, you know, knowledgeable Christians. There's a process, just like babies have to take a process to learn how to walk and talk and take care of themselves and so on and so forth. And we talked about also earlier how in every stage we can be pleasing to God. In every stage we can be considered perfect in the eyes of God by living to the, what we know, to the light that we've been given if we are completely surrendered. So we might be just first a blade. But God can see that's a perfect plant for that phase. But, just like we talked about earlier, there is what's called the point of perfection. And in this, in this illustration, it is called the point of ripeness. Okay? When the harvest is ripe, then the reaping takes place. So because no one in their right mind would reap a blade of grass, basically, if it's corn growing, it is grass, you're not going to get very much. You've got to wait until the appropriate time. They've, it's got to grow to a certain stage. And in the same way, there's a certain stage that must be reached in order the har- and before the harvest is fully ripe. So the question is, when is the harvest ripe? What does it mean that the harvest is ripe? I'll give you a little clue. The seed determines the crop. Right? If you plant corn, it gives you the expectation of what the ripe fruit should be. You look for the fully formed corn in the ear. If you plant a watermelon seed, you're not going to pick a tiny little watermelon like this, right? You're going to look for the dry tendrils and you know it's going to be big and you know, all this stuff. So, in order for us to better understand this process of growing, growth and ripeness, what does ripeness really mean? We've got to understand what the seed is because we've got to know what crop we're talking about. So, I'm going to give you the answer right there. Christ is the seed. Well, let's, let's prove that. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse uh, 24. Let's begin in verse 23, actually. <clears throat> and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, what hour is that? What event is he speaking of? The hour that he's to be glorified? Well, that sure sounds a lot like... His, uh, his death that is soon to occur. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone, but if it die, it brings forth much, what? Fruit. So Jesus says, I am the seed because I'm about to die and I must die because when I die, through my death, 
I can bring about much fruit. You see the connection. Jesus Christ is the seed that was planted. And therefore, what kind of a crop or ripe harvest are we looking for at the conclusion? <laughs> there you go. Seems like, hey, we're hearing the same theme arising from our various talks today. So at the conclusion of the harvest, we're looking for fruit that looks like Jesus. Just like you plant corn and, you know, whatever variety of corn, you expect your crop to look like the variety of corn that you planted. So, let me just connect the dots. In this illustration of the harvest and the first fruits, ripeness is the same thing as Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness, we talked about the last hour, is the same thing as being sealed. I didn't put this on the screen, but ripeness then is actually reaching that point of no return that we're talking about. The point of no return in which we have made such decided resolution for God that nothing will ever move us from that. That is when the harvest is ripe. Okay, so let's go back to our earlier discussion, the 144,000 sacredly dedicated to the Lord for a special purpose, 140,000 representative of the rest of the harvest. Okay, so we're starting to think a little bit. Okay, how can that be? The harvest cannot continue until the first fruits are presented. Hmm, and this is one of those things that I think we need to use our minds to wrestle with a little bit. We talked a little bit about talents in the first hour and that not everyone is given the same amount of talents. Another way to put it is that not everyone is given the same amount of light and not all at the same time. So, let's use a classic example, Martin Luther. Was Martin Luther a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? You bet he was. But was he given all the light? He didn't keep the Sabbath. He still baptized infants. He didn't particularly like people who, uh, you know, the Anabaptists, and there were other issues. What about William Miller? He didn't keep the Sabbath either, but we're told the angel guards the dust of his grave. He sure sounds like a faithful man, done a lot of good. What about those people? Can we say that they had a perfect experience with God at their face? To our best of our knowledge, we can't judge, but sure seems that way. Both were willing to give their lives entirely for the Lord. But we are in a great controversy in which there is an adversary, the accuser of the brethren. And God has been orchestrating the whole great controversy in such a way to answer one by one the allegations and the charges of, this, of the accuser of Satan against him. And so one of the arguments could easily be, how can you bring William Miller and how can you bring Martin Luther to heaven when they never kept the Sabbath? When clearly they were not fully up to speed. How would you know that they will not fail you again in the future? You see the line of reasoning? There are people, yeah, okay, so they were faithful, but they're dead. How do we know that if you bring them back to life, they're not going to be just like me? Hmm. Hmm. So God says, okay, 
we have the records of their lives, right? That's what the, the judgment is all about. The books are open, the angels are watching, and the, the, the judgment starts with the dead first. And they're judging, and they, they have the record of his life, and the heavenly intelligences can see the character of this man. And they also see, this is all that he was given. This is all the light he has. He was only given two talents, as an example. And so God says, okay, you see the quality of their commitment to me? You see that they have crossed this line based on their knowledge of, of not turning back, complete commitment, the point of no return in their phase? Well, let me show you at the end of time a group of people, a group of people who I have revealed the rest of the story and I allow them to go through your test, Satan, and these people are faithful. And the quality of their commitment to me is the same as Martin Luther and of the Millers in their day. They committed 100% to me. And these people at the end of time, they committed 100% to me. And so if they were given the same opportunities as the 144,000 with the same quality of faith, with the same experiences in their lives, and I've got the records to show you, Satan, what they are, those people will grow to be like those people. You follow the line of reasoning. So the first fruits are representative of the saved of all previous eras. Because this is the group of people where at the end of time, God has revealed all that they're, of course, all, right? I mean, we go to heaven and we'll be studying more mysteries, but you understand what I'm saying. The light is revealed to them that was not previously revealed. And we see that this group of people, they are faithful unto death. And the quality of their faith, the perfection of their faith, the entire 100% commitment of not turning back is the same as Miller and Luther and the faithful saints of old. And in that way, the 144,000 are the representatives of the rest of the harvest, and that's why the harvest cannot continue until they are here. So the quality of their faith is representative of what all the righteous dead would become if they had the same opportunities, the first fruits. And I'm going a little unscripted here. Let me see if I can find it in Hebrews. Hebrews, <clears throat> this is not in my notes, so you, you know how that goes sometimes. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 40. Actually, let's start in verse 39. Hebrews chapter 11, we understand that to be the faith chapter. We see all of these faithful men and women, powerful men and women, all the way through. Some were sawn asunder, you know, some were destitute in caves and they're out there. And Paul even writes, of whom the world was not worthy. Verse 39, and these all, all of these righteous, all of these faithful, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Hebrews 11, we see Abraham, he's looking for a better country whose maker and a, and a better city, whose builder and maker is God. They're looking for that promise, and they haven't gotten there yet. And verse 40 says, God having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, at the end of time, should not be made perfect. In other words, 
all of those faithful men and women in history. And in, in fact, the very next verse, Hebrews chapter 12, says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, all those righteous dead, like the blood of Abel, figuratively, you know, we're, we're, they're in the grave, they're not in heaven, but figuratively they're crying out, Finish this race! Hebrews 12 talks about run this race with patience because those people, they need the first fruits. They have exhibited faith, but we need the end time representation of faithful living. When the mark of the beast crisis comes, we need a people who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. And that's what the first fruits are all about. The first fruits, the 144,000 is needed to allow the rest of the harvest to take place. But let's take a look at the actual harvest now. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 14. Because the first part of Revelation 14, we see the descriptions of the 144,000. We see they're the first fruits. And then we go into launch into the three angels' messages. And then right after that, we talk about the harvest. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat <clears throat> uh, one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is all familiar language, isn't it? The harvest is ripe. Immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is ripe. And what does it mean the harvest is ripe? There are a bunch of Christ-like people on the earth now, right? Verse 16, And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. But we continue reading. Verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over the fire, and cried with a loud voice unto him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred Furlongs. So how many harvests do we read about here in Revelation 14? There are actually two. The first harvest is awfully familiar to everything that we've been talking about. It's the harvest of grain and, and it's a harvest of the righteous. So there are those who are ripe unto salvation. That's the first harvest. But we see the second harvest, they were ripe unto destruction. And what kind of crop, what kind of fruit were they? The first crop, they were grain. It was grain. The second crop were grapes, right? So that means there are actually two groups of first fruits in Revelation 14. There's the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. That's what we've talked about so far. But there are also the other first fruits. Let's take a look in Joel, okay, in the Old Testament. Joel. Joel chapter 3, 
And the, the primary verse is verse 13, but to give you a little context, it's talking about the judgment on the nations, judgment on the heathen. Verse 12 says, Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. So we're talking about judgment on the wicked. Verse 13, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Does that sound familiar? The harvest is ripe. Put in the sickle. But what kind of ripeness are we talking about? Come, get you down, for the press is full, the wine press it is, and the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So we have talked so far on the positive end of this discussion, and that is the first fruits unto God. They are beyond the point of no return in favor of God, but now we have another harvest of the grapes who are ripe. And it says, it's time to gather them in because their wickedness is great. That means there is a limit. There is a limit to the wickedness that God will permit in the world before he judges. And this ripening process, guess what? It's the same. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there are two groups of harvests in Revelation 14. And what we see here are one side that is so decidedly in favor for God that they won't move. And then the other group, they are so intensely antagonistic against God that they won't move. And from what I see, those are the only two groups. You're either for God or you're against God. And I believe this is the final piece of evidence, a human evidence presented in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. God says this is my final exhibit of the type of people, of what people will be like who accept me entirely in their lives. First fruits unto God. And then these over here, these are those who choose the devil's way. First fruits unto destruction. And the watching universe will see, without a shadow of a doubt, the final conclusion of God's administration and Satan's administration. Right here in the harvest. Harvest unto salvation and the harvest unto condemnation. But here's where the, here's where the rub comes. The process of both harvests are the same. The process to become sheaves of first fruits to be dedicated before the Father. And the process to become grapes of wrath, to be cast into the winepress of God's wrath, is the same. And there are only two groups. And so what that tells me is that in our personal character development from day to day, year to year, week to week, we are actually making a decision either to be in one group or the other. There is no third group. I put this in my slide so that I won't get off script a little too much here. It says, character development is a process, as is illustrated by the growing of a plant. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. This is the case both for a righteous character as well as for a wicked one. 
No one is ripe overnight, either for good or for ill. It is a process. And that is why we need to think carefully in which direction our character is growing. To be ripe unto God or to be ripe unto destruction. And so I am alarmed sometimes when people tell me, and I've heard this, is that I'm not going to get my life in order until I see the final events. And yes, we were just talking with a, you know, one of our brothers here. The Bible does specify that there are events to transpire before Jesus comes. There will be a Sunday law. There will be the mark of the beast, the image of the beast. There are events that will take place. So we can't say, you know, Jesus is coming tonight because there are certain things that, prophetically speaking, hasn't happened. But, but, remember, the, the wicked servant said, my Lord delays his coming. And by saying that, he's forming a character that is going to be in the wrong harvest. And so sometimes we think about this as it's some day down the road when I see some of these events predicted in prophecy and it doesn't look like it's about to happen now, then I'll get ready. But guess what? Every decision, every choice, every priority that we make today is leading us down a path to be ripe either for God or ripe against God. And I'm resisting the urge to preach anymore. But let me just say this. In the Bible... There are people who have filled up their quota, if you will, or they have filled up the cup of God's wrath, and they have exhausted God's mercy. King Saul is one of them. And he was ripe unto destruction. And yet there are others on the other side who is like Enoch in this our day. So the decision is not simply... Which side will I be then? Which side will I be on then? That determination is made now. Every choice, every decision, our relationships, the attitude that we choose to harbor determines which first fruits we get to be a part of. So here's the question. Which type of first fruits do you want to be? an appeal from Jesus Christ himself. When the fruit is brought forth, this is Christ's object lessons, page 69. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. We often say, we're waiting for Jesus to come. Even so, Lord, quickly, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. We're asking him to hasten. Uh, who's doing the waiting here? Jesus is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people. And of course, we've talked about this today. I hope it's clear that that perfection is talking about 
reaching that point of no return. Be having our wills and our intents and motives so intertwined with Christ that when we obey Him, we are but carrying out our own impulses. When that happens, Christ will come to claim them as His own. He needs the first fruits. He needs the first fruits. So, let's summarize what we've talked about today. We're winding down here. The first hour, we talked about the servants of God. And the servants of God, just to encapsulate, we talked about many things, solely concerned about the master's will and his glory, obedient even unto death. That's what it means to be a servant of God. When we are servants to God, we are not our own. We belong to the master. And that means our primary priority and a primary interest is his interest, not mine. So the U.S. Constitution might say it's a human right, you know, our pursuit of happiness. Yes, it's a right, okay. But for the Christian, the highest priority is the pursuit of the glory of God, not our own happiness. And God is gracious because when we seek his will, that's where we'll find the most fulfillment in life. And so the servants of God are those who are concerned about the Father's will and his glory. They're obedient even unto death, just like Daniel and his three friends. We talked about the seal of God. Those who receive the seal of God, they're loyally committed to God beyond the point of no return. They cannot be moved. And this session, we talked about the first fruits. This is the full representation of what fallen man can become in Christ. We can talk about the mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We can go to Revelation 10. We're talk- we can talk about the mystery of God being finished right here, being one with Jesus, having Christ dwell within us. And of course, the central theme that has woven all of these concepts together, and really the core thought that I want to leave with you, is what character? The question is, what character are we forming? What character are we forming? Will we give Jesus our all? It is a process that we are each going through each and every day. So in The final conclusion, I want to share with you a passage from the book Great Controversy. I won't make any commentary. I'll just read it and pray. But listen carefully to Ellen White as she expounds on her vision at the last day, the 144,000. And hopefully it ties together many of the things that we've been discussing here. Upon the crystal sea before the throne, that sea of glass as it were mingled with fire, So resplendent is it with the glory of God are gathered the company that have gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. With the lamb upon Mount Zion, having the harps of God, they stand, the hundred and forty-four thousand that were redeemed from among men. And there is heard as the sound of many waters and as the sound of a great thunder, the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne a song which no man can learn save the 144,000. It is the song of Moses and the Lamb, a song of deliverance. None but the 144,000 can learn that song, for it is the song of their experience, an experience such as no other company have ever had. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These, having been translated from the earth from among the living, are counted as the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. These are they which came out of great tribulation. 
They have passed through the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. They have endured the anguish of the time of Jacob's trouble. They have stood without an intercessor through the final outpouring of God's judgments. But they have been delivered, for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In their mouth was found no guile, for they are fault before God. Therefore, they before the throne of, therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They have seen the earth wasted with famine and pestilence, the sun having power to scorch men with great heat. And they themselves have endured suffering, hunger, and thirst, but they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Great Controversy, page 600. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel at your mercy towards us, for your patience towards such an erring and proud and self-serving generation. Father, we see clearly revealed in your word that you are looking for a group of people to stand faithful upon the earth, who will be faithful unto death, will stand for the right though the heavens fall. We know that this is the final chapter in the great controversy, that you are looking for a people to maintain fidelity to God on earth and to reach that point of no return, to be so completely committed and sold out to Jesus that nothing can shake that determination. May we be like Enoch. May we be like Job. May we be like Daniel and his three friends, and most of all, may we be like Jesus, who say, not my will, but thine be done. And may we be faithful until that day when Jesus comes. May we be among that number, Lord, if you please, that we might be among that special number that can stand through the time of trouble to give glory to you in the final hours of earth's history. May you give us that, uh, that gracious opportunity if it is your will. But nevertheless, may we be faithful regardless of the cost today. May you lead us from this place. May you help us to shape our decisions, our choices, and our character into the likeness of Jesus every moment, every day. May you, and Lord truly, may you keep us faithful. May you keep our hearts pure, for we cannot do it. And so we commit ourselves, our families, our future, our plans, all to you today, asking by faith in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.